This past week, I was talking with Jonathan Wilberding briefly on what God means when he uses the word soon. Uh, we were talking about a certain context where the Apostle Paul is encouraging Timothy to endure, and then he gives him hope by saying, God soon will make things plain. And when we, uh, when we talked about that, we both began to laugh because for Paul and ultimately the Lord, God's definition of soon really doesn't match ours. Uh, it seems like his soon is our really long. And it kind of makes me think about children. If you've ever had young children or you've been around young children, and if you say just a second or if you say in just a little bit or it's going to happen soon or even after church today, mom, dad, when are we going to get in the car? Soon. Ugh. And why do they do that? Because your soon doesn't match their soon, right? Now, we do, as we get older, we, we, we do recognize soon can mean longer than a minute, right? And, and sometimes soon could mean a day, sometimes soon could mean 30 minutes, sometimes soon could mean a week from now. And as we... And as we get older, though, I think as we learn these things, our perspective obviously changes, even so much so that, um, well, let me say it this way. If you, if you have had children ever, um, have you ever had an older person say to you, enjoy the moments because it goes by so fast? Have you ever had anybody say something like that to you? Let's just see a raise of hands, Okay goes by so fast, and you're thinking, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Um, but you know what? When you actually get to a certain point and you look back, we often say, wow, that went so fast. And I can't help but wonder if that's what it's going to be like when we see the Lord face to face someday. That when we see him, we'll say, wow, that went so fast. All the waiting, all the enduring in this life will then seem like a mist that disappears. But as we go through this life, it can feel very long. That's why, by the way, I really love the phrase that the days are long, but the years are short. And I'm so thankful in the midst of this life, in the midst of what the Bible even says, this, this short life. That God doesn't have an angry response to his children and just say to us when we're waiting. He doesn't just say, buck up. It's not a long time. Stop complaining. Stop acting like a child. We are his children. Instead, he comes alongside of us and he consistently shares with us the reality and what reality is and what he promises to us in the midst of waiting. Now, I'm emphasizing waiting because waiting is a huge lesson for Abraham. God has given him promises, and we come to Genesis 17 this morning. And by this point in time, in Genesis 17, Abraham has been living in the land that God told him to go to. Can you just take a guess how many years he's been living in this land? Since chapter 12 to chapter 17, 24 years. 24 years, and what does he have to show for it? 
He has not acquired the land for himself and his offspring, and he doesn't even have offspring. 24 years, and he's still waiting. I don't know about you, that doesn't sound soon. That doesn't sound quick. Maybe you're here right now, and you're feeling the waiting and you feel confused. And I simply want to say to you that Abram, who is going to be renamed Abraham in this text, he is one who becomes the father of Judaism. He's the ancestor of Christianity. And then as well, in our world, Muslims claim him as well as the father of their faith. We have in this world today the three largest religions who trace their heritages back to Abraham. And I just want to ask you, what is Abraham known for? What spectacular thing did Abraham do? He waited. He waited on the Lord. He trusted and waited. Waiting matters to God. It's in the waiting that we find that we draw closer to him and we believe on him with greater fervency. That almost doesn't make sense to us that waiting on him increases our faith. But I want to ask this other question. Why, why do we wait? Or why would Abram wait? And why would Abram continue to listen to the Lord? And why would Abram listen to God even when God corrects him in his sin if God hasn't followed through on the deal? You know what I mean? Where's my land and where's a child? And yet when he's rebuked, he seems to actually respond to it. The Abram trusts and then learns to obey. Why? Why does he do that? I think the answer is that God has promised himself to Abram. When the author of Hebrews later on in the Bible says that Abraham was looking forward to a city whose builder and maker is God... I think what we see is that the yearning of Abraham is to live with God. He wants to be with him. God has promised that to him. And I think that that's for anyone here who's a believer this morning. If you're persevering in waiting, you know this yearning. You don't just want to get through. I mean, we all like to get through. <laughs> But you don't want to just get through and not learn anything more about God and not be drawn closer to the Lord. You don't want your waiting to be wasted. You want to draw closer to him because he is worthy. And he's more worthy than anything else. And so Abram can endure because God has promised himself to him and he has promised a glorious eternity that matches God's worth. So for Abram, what else can he do? Where else can he go? Now, some of you may not understand what I'm saying here, and so I'm just going to jump into the text here. But before I do, and before we begin reading, I want to give you the main idea of the sermon today, which is 
that God's covenant promise empowers and requires a sanctified life to those who trust him. And that waiting, by the way, the trust is expressed in waiting. Um, and in other things too. But we see this from Abram today. In a man who's been waiting on the Lord for 24 years. So we start with the first part of the main idea to talk about God's covenant promise. Verses 1 and 2 give us the context of the remainder of the chapter. So we read these first two verses. When Abram was 99 years old and the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. Now, the distance of time between the last verse of chapter 16 and the first verse of chapter 17 is 14 years. What happened in those 14 years? We have no idea. We just know there's been a lot of waiting, right? Now Abram is 99 years old, and we're told the Lord appears to him, and as is always the case when God appears to someone, is there's a physical response. And Abram's response is to fall prostrate face on the ground before the Lord because he has come into contact with the creator and master and sustainer of all. But the Lord himself tells Abram who he is. He, he shares a characteristic of himself. He, he says, I am God Almighty. The Hebrew for God Almighty here is El Shaddai. You may have heard of that phrase decades ago, a popular Christian song, El Shaddai. And you sing it and you go, I have no idea what that means. It's just a pretty song. What does El Shaddai mean? Now, in our English translations, it says God Almighty. And, and actually, that idea has stuck in our English translations because way back a long time ago, there was a Latin translation called the Vulgate, and the Christian man Jerome put the Vulgate together, and he argued that this means God Almighty. And so people just have stuck with it. But there's a lot of people who have studied this Shaddai, and there's actually kind of confusion around what, how do we really translate this word, Shaddai? We know El is God, but Shaddai, what does that mean? Because it does communicate power, but it's more than that. One commentator, one man said this, that Shaddai evokes the idea that God is able to make the barren fertile and to fulfill his promises. When we go forward in the book of Genesis, this phrase El Shaddai shows up every time God is affirming that the barren woman is going to have the seed of the woman. So it's not just that God has the most power. You know, when you think of God Almighty, you're like, he's the most powerful one. It's that God is power. You hear that? Not just the most, he is power, and what God does is he unites his power with his promises to fulfill what he says. That's what El Shaddai is. Unites his power with his promises. This is the God on whom Abraham has been trusting. And then the Lord says in verse 2 that he's going to make a covenant with Abram in order to multiply him greatly. Now at this point in time, you might be thinking, wait a second. I thought God made a covenant in chapter 15. 
And now here in chapter 17, he's saying he's going to make a covenant. Did God forget that he already made a covenant? What's going on here? This covenant sounds oddly familiar to chapter 15. So is this new? Do you you understand the question? God, we know God didn't forget because he's not a forgetful God. Actually, I believe that chapter 15 and chapter 17 are stating the same covenant. And, and one of the reasons why I believe that is actually in Nehemiah 9. Nehemiah speaks of chapter 15 and 17, bringing together statements from both, putting them all together and saying it's one. It's one covenant. Um, there's other reasons why I believe that too. But what I see here in chapter 17 is that God is expanding the covenant promise. In chapter 17, here we see some of the expansions descendants forever. Not just descendants, but forever descendants. Land forever. And then Abram and his offspring to walk before him. Therefore, the one who is power and will act in ways to fulfill his miraculous promises will commit his, himself to Abram and his offspring. Okay? But As just stated, God also calls calls Abram and his offspring to walk before him, which leads us to the next part of the main idea. God's covenant promise empowers and requires a sanctified life. Now, let me just make sure really quick that I define sanctified life. Sanctified, biblical, Christian-y term, okay? What does sanctified mean? It means to be set apart for. So we're set apart for God And the Bible teaches us that he grows us in obedience to him. Okay, so that's what we mean by a sanctified life. To be set apart to God, to grow in obedience to God. God's covenant promise empowers and requires a sanctified life. Let's read again uh, from parts of verses 1 and 2. God says of himself, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you. Now, if you think about the covenant in chapter 15, God did not require, or God made sure that Abram did not walk through the cut up body parts of the animals. Do you remember why? Do you remember why? Yeah, he put him to sleep because there's no way that Abram could fulfill this covenant, right? Abram can't get himself the land and Abram can't make Sarai pregnant. He can't. But then you look at this, and it sounds like God is saying he's not going to keep his promise unless Abram walks before the Lord and is blameless. You see that? Let's just look at the text again. Walk before me that I may make my covenant. Or you could say walk before me so that I make my covenant before. So wait a second. Who is this covenant dependent on? Is the covenant dependent on God, or is the covenant dependent on Abram? I mean, and this is actually where I think things become even more beautiful. God puts requirements on Abram here, walk before me. And yet this entire chapter is surrounded by God telling him what he's going to do. God telling Abram what God is going to do. 
I mean, even here in, in this verse, my ESV says that I may make my covenant, but I think better translated that I might give my covenant. What is God giving? Meaning, it's grace. It's, it's he. He has to be the one to give it. And then in this chapter, it's him naming Abram, renaming him, him renaming Sarai. The whole chapter is surrounded by God doing that's why I say God's covenant promise empowers and requires a sanctified life. Because without God sustaining and being the bedrock underneath all of it, Abram's not going to do it. But if God is the one sustaining and making the promise, Abram will do it. Do you see this? God, God not only requires, but he enables God's promises, listen to this, God's promises never lead to people being apathetic towards him. God's promises to save people always leads to people's lives being transformed. So if we merge together chapters 12, where Abram's called, chapter 15, chapter 17, we see that when God saves someone, now listen carefully here. When God saves someone, it's not just a past tense thing. Did you know that? We, we often get the past tense. I was saved when. Okay? But God's salvation is also a present tense thing. That it keeps going. If God has rescued you from your sin in the past, he continues to do that work in the present time. Did you know that? And that's what God is saying to Abram here in verse 2. Abram has had a reconciled relationship, I believe, since chapter 12. He trusted and believed and he went. But now we're looking at this covenant involving all of Abram's life, not just the past, but the present and here in this text, eternity future. So with that understanding, let's see, let's see what this covenant entails. First, there's a requirement in the covenant. Walk before El Shaddai and be blameless. Now, to walk before means to live completely in the light of God's presence, knowing he's with you always. It's to live in light of, his God's presen in, in light of God's presence always, aware of his promises and demands. This reminds me of what uh, certain people, certain Christians, hundreds of years ago, they had this Latin phrase and they would say, Coram Deo. And that means to live before the face of God. Every day, we know his face is looking at us. You know, God is with you always, sees you always, sees everything you're doing. And not only does he see what you're doing, he knows in here. He sees it all. We are to live in the light of his presence. That's what walking before him means. God is our life and our freedom. El Shaddai is working his power and his promises together for our eternal good. If you fail to walk daily, listen, just for application for us, if we fail to walk daily before the face of God, 
we are going to buy into the lies of temptation. Do you know that? You're, you're going to believe that living for money, living for reputation, living for lust, living for good things like marriage and children, you name it, you're going to start to believe that's what life is all about. If you don't live before the face of God, and yet sin always leads to death, no matter how small you think it is. To live before the face of God is recognizing only God can satisfy because he is El Shaddai. So God calls Abram to embrace and live in the freedom of the relationship he has. And then he calls him to be blameless. Now this word for blameless doesn't have to mean moral perfection. It could just be interpreted to be living with integrity. However, it also can mean moral perfection. Having said that, I don't just want to emphasize the behavior, because this Hebrew word for blameless actually is a relational term. It's a relational term that means to have a wholeness in relationship. And in this context, it's a wholeness in relationship with God. Wholeness in relationship. And keep in mind here, this call isn't just for Abram. Verse 7 says that the covenant is for Abram and all his offspring. So if that's the case, I can't help but think about us. And you say, wait a second, I'm not a Jew. So he's not talking to me. And yet, in Galatians, we read that if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you are Abram's offspring. So this does matter, to walk before him and live blamelessly, live in wholeness of relationship with God. Listen. If you meet someone, or if you are like this, someone who says that they're saved, but they live without care or concern about Jesus daily in their lives, they must have a different understanding of what saved means. Maybe saved means I, I have my get out of hell free card. Maybe saved means I prayed a prayer and now I'm all set and good to go to heaven? They're thinking of it just past tense. But being blameless is relationship. Where's your relationship with the Lord? Because we know, we know what the Apostle James says, right? James says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. God saving us has present ramifications. Do you believe that? Do you trust that he has given you, as the offspring of Abram, that he has given you the power to do the miracles of killing sin in your life and loving him? Do you believe that? Empowering you to love and enjoy him. Now getting back to Abram, how is he going to maintain this wholeness in relationship? Ultimately, it's going to be because of the Lord. The Lord is the foundation. That leads to verses 3 through 8, where God emphasizes his work in, through, and for Abram. This is the name change of Abram. And then we're also going to talk about Sarai's name change. So here's the reminder. You have the requirement, but here's the reminder. Let's first read verses 3 through 8. So then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. 
I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So here is where we read Abram's going to receive an eternal land and an eternal offspring. And it's really important to note here that these phrases have literal and spiritual understandings to them. For example, to be the father of nations, I do think implies that there's going to be a nation that comes, a physical, literal nation that's going to come from Abram. But the term father doesn't always have to mean biology. So like later on in Genesis, Joseph is referred to in Genesis 45, 8, he's referred to as the father of Pharaoh. Was he biologically the father of Pharaoh? Was he? Oh, I don't know. I haven't done the ancestry test. I mean, no, he wasn't. He wasn't the father of. It's a spiritual understanding that we have here. And so I think it's important, even in the book of Genesis, father of doesn't only relate to biology. Even at the end of this chapter, the people who are circumcised is everyone in Abraham's household, whether, and, he, and, and he did not have biological children, and yet now he becomes the father of the whole household. See that? Okay, so father has literal and spiritual ramifications. And one of the reasons why I'm saying this is because we have to understand that this covenant has global ramifications. This is a big covenant that God is promising here. Therefore, God gives Abram a new name, Abraham. And the name takes Abram's focus off of his past and onto his present and future. The, the name Abram means exalted father, which is probably referring to Terah, his father, who was more than likely wealthy, had a lot of stuff. And so Abram is the son of a great dad. But now it's changed to Abraham, which is a father of a multitude. He's going to be the father of a multitude, which is a global promise that will extend into eternity future. So now Abram is no longer simply identified by his past. Abraham is an identification. It's his identification that points to future glory. Sarai, it's similarly. In verses 15 and 16, look with me. It says, And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall, call, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Now the names Sarai and Sarah actually have essentially the same meaning. But the name change is to indicate something different. Sarai means princess. Sarah means princess. But it's just a different kind of princess here. And so what we're looking at, it kind of reminds me of when Adam, in faith, names his wife Eve. You're the mother of all living. And he's looking forward to the promise of God. And here, Sarah, you are a princess. But it's more like you're the queen mother. 
you will have a child. Nations are going to come from you. Kings will come. God is going to keep his promise. So she is known by God's promise, not by her human past, but by God's promised future. And I just want to state this too, by means of hopefully encouragement to all of us. It is glorious that when God gives salvation, he changes our identity, right? We are children of God. We are, even as Kaiki said in the call to worship, we are now kingdom of priests. We are princes and princesses before our God who is the king. That's our identity that then we should live in. Our, our identity should dictate to us how we then live because this is the freedom and the power and authority that has been given to us. We are his spiritual children. Amen? Amen? I'm getting ahead of myself. God is continuing this covenant and he's calling Abraham to walk before him and be known for God's promises towards him. And then God gives a sign of the covenant to Abraham. And a sign is simply that. If you, if you drive down the road and, and you're going to, many of you are probably going to go this direction down the road to go home and you get to 152nd, and right before 152nd, there's a sign that has a picture of a stop sign on it. What does that mean? There's a stop sign ahead. The sign is just pointing out reality, right? Uh, and, a, and a sign on the road is either pointing out reality or pointing out how you live in reality. So stop, right? Very easy. So a sign, that's what a sign is in the scriptures. It's pointing out reality. It's telling us what something is. Now, God is giving Abram, Abraham a sign. It's going to be really hard for me. I've tried so hard from chapters 12 to 17 to keep saying Abram, and now his name's changed, and it's just totally playing with my brain. Okay, so if I say Abram, just show grace, please. Um, here we have the sign of circumcision. Why is this the sign of circumcision? It's because the promise relates to having children. The promise relates to having nations, and so you have a sign that relates to procreation, okay? So let's look at verses 9 through 14. God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you, he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or, brought, or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, physical and spiritual, get that? Both he who is born in your house and he who is brought with your, bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So this is a perpetual generational reminder. And we know why. Because it speaks to the reality of future generations of Abram's off, Abraham's offspring. So we have a physical sign, reminds us of physical procreation. In addition, it's also a sign of the curse of the covenant as well, because it is, it is purposeful irony here to say that one who doesn't, one who is not circumcised will be cut off. 
okay? So circumcision is a sign of God's promise and faithfulness and also of the curse of the covenant if you don't trust him. And that leads us to the last part of the main idea, those who trust. Let's read verses 17 to 27. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. So, question here. Is Abraham trusting the Lord in these verses? Now, I say yes, he is. But I can't help but wonder if there's a little bit, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief kind of going on. Um, notice he does call his wife Sarah. I don't know how many years they were married, but I'm imagining like probably at least 70 years he's been calling her Sarai. And I had a hard time switching from Abram to Abraham just over these past few weeks. And, but he, God says, call her Sarah. And his response is to call her Sarah. I think he's trusting the Lord. But you have this laughter here. Now, this laughter could be a laughter of disbelief, but I, I tend to think it's more of a laughter of, like, shocked belief. I mean, have you ever had a time before where you heard something, you're like, oh, my goodness, that's crazy. And you know it's true, but it's like, it's too good to be true. Anybody ever felt that before? I think that that's what Abraham's feeling. We can relate to that kind of laughter. And but yet, in the midst of this laughter, there's also sorrow for Abraham. Why? Because of his son Ishmael. He begs for Ishmael to have the blessings of the promise. God says, what? No, it's not for him. And just like with Hagar, Abraham has to trust that the Lord is good, even though Ishmael is not going to receive this promise. Parents, can you imagine the ache of this for your children? Can you just sit in it for a moment? I remember a quote, I think it was from a song decades ago, and it said, if you cannot trace God's hand, trace his heart. This is what God has called Hagar to do. This is what God has called Abraham to do. It's not going to be Ishmael. But I have heard you. He has heard the sorrow of Abraham's broken heart, and God promises blessing to Ishmael. 
He will have kings and princes. And you know what? I, I think there have probably been many people from Ishmael's line who have come to become offspring of Abraham spiritually. But God has given the covenant to Isaac. And what's so awesome is Isaac's name means laughter. How cool is that? And what a story for Abraham to tell his son. And when God told me your mom was going to have a baby, I just laughed. And that's why you're named laughter. <laughs> you know, like, it's just hilarious. Isn't God hilarious? It's just hilariously good at the shocked amazement that El Shaddai, the one with all power, has merged his power with his promises to bring about Isaac. And so we see, I think, trust from Abraham. And this trust is expressed in obedience to God with the covenant sign. His entire household is then circumcised in anticipation of God's covenant. And so when we look at this entire chapter, I think we can see God's covenant promises empower and require a sanctified life for those who trust. But then what does this chapter have to do with us today? I've already spoken some application implications for us. But I want to just briefly get back into this idea of circumcision for a few moments. And you might be like, really? Why? Um, sometimes we get uncomfortable. Just That word showed up many times in the reading. Why? This is weird. And it's a weird sign. Like, why would God choose that sign? The divine being circumcised. Oh, please. Any other sign? Why circumcision? Circumcision is gross, circumcision is bloody, circumcision is vulnerable and uncomfortable, it's weird. But there are spiritual realities that circumcision points to. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, God prophesies a day when he says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. The physical circumcision is meant to point to the spiritual reality of a need for a heart change to where I, I don't just do the required things, but that my heart is changed so that I want God and I actually obey from the heart. That that flesh, that sin is cut away. Because you know what? God is not just God is not just interested in having a lot of people that he owns. God already owns everything, right? God wants hearts. He wants your heart. He wants you. So the eternal offspring of Abraham are those who have Abraham as their father spiritually. Those people who have their hearts circumcised and are set apart for God. And now the question is, is how in the world is it possible for someone to have a circumcised heart? And it's through the offspring of Abram, Abraham, the ultimate offspring, who is Jesus. Now you might say, I think you're reaching. But we just read earlier in the service from Colossians chapter 2. I'm just going to highlight one verse from our reading. 
in him, in Jesus, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Stop. What is the circumcision of Christ? This is not talking about the eighth day circumcision as a child. Because as Paul goes on, and if you can recall or you can look it up in your own Bibles, what Paul goes on to talk about is he talks about the death, life, and resurrection of Jesus. And then he emphasizes the death of Jesus, how, how our sins were written against us. And Jesus took our sins. That's, by the way, this cross there with that list, that's a sin list, and it's representing this Colossians passage. Jesus became our sin list and took our sins and was nailed to the cross. And so he was circumcised on the cross. What does that mean? That means that on the cross, Jesus took the covenant curse. What was the covenant curse? Those who don't do this will be cut off. Jesus was cut off at the cross. So that anyone, anyone who really humbles themselves and acknowledges their sin and goes to Christ for forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God, then you experience the circumcision of the heart. He took the sins so that you could have his righteousness. Amen? Jesus took the curse he was naked, vulnerable, bloodied, cut off. But he was blameless, and he walked before the Lord perfectly. And now we're told in the scriptures he gives a new covenant that is entirely dependent on him, a new covenant that fulfills Deuteronomy, this new covenant that gives hearts of flesh and not of stone. Oh, and by the way, this eighth day, theologically speaking, if we go back to creation, how many days were there that are recorded for the creation narrative? How many? Seven. I mean, six days of creating, but seven, rest. Eight is a sign of new creation. And so this circumcision is supposed to be pointing towards a new creation day when it's not just a circumcision of the flesh, but of the heart. And in that new creation, we have promises of a new heaven and a new earth, right? And Jesus himself says, I go to prepare a place for you, and I'm coming again to take you there. Jesus is the fulfillment. So if you're here and you don't trust in Christ, or you have questions about Jesus, I'd urge you, talk to someone. Learn more about Christ. I urge you to trust him because he's so good. And if you are a believer in Christ, live out the freedom and the identity that he has given you as Abraham's offspring. As a child of God. Live out the freedom Christ has purchased for you. And as the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. God's covenant is to empower us to live sanctified lives. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. How am I going to do it? Because God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Because God is at work in you, you can work for his glory. God's 
covenant promise empowers and requires a sanctified life to those who trust him. So let's live before the one who has saved us, is saving us, and is coming again. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you. Hallowed be your name. May you be gloried in and glorified. And I pray you'd work in our hearts to trust you truly, to obey you because you're worthy and so good. To you be the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen.